just a heads up that this episode contains references to mental health, mental illness, including depression, psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, and suicide. Our guest, Sharon Smith, has been really helpful to us in understanding matters around mental wellness, and we hope that this episode is helpful to you as well. Thanks for listening. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the Rector's Cupboard. Order! So we're opening up the Rector's Cupboard. We are. Ken Bell is here. I am. Now, Ken, you have a special treat for us today. A new... A new brewery has opened up in North Van because we were we were lacking, lacking breweries. For short. It's uh, in what's called the brewery district. It is in the brewery district, and this one's got a bit of a different twist. It's it's a Mexican theme, so you got you go in, and it's got a bit of a Mexican restaurant vibe that also makes its own beer, and it is called Las Cerveceria Estirios, I think. Uh, or close you sound enough. Sounds like a politician speaking that second language. Yeah, yeah. yeah anyway. I felt a well little. Well done, Ken. I, thank you very much. I felt a little like that. Uh, and most people, when they think of uh, Mexican beer, they sort of associate it with um, Corona. Corona, and of course, and Corona. This is doesn't a look lager. like Corona. What's the other one? Uh, oh, there's a couple Dussel. of them. Tecate or something. Yeah. Tecate. Tecate. I don't like any Corona. Of this is I going. can say that. It is. It is, is it a still going to be called Corona after 2020. Oh Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Uh, so with the Corona, of course, if you have a Corona beer, uh, most people associate with you put a lime in it, and it makes it somewhat tolerable. But that's actually a very common thing. So the first beer we're going to try is this is uh, Las Cervecerias. You're saying it again. Salted lime lager. Salted and lime that's lager. That's what I'm drinking. What we'd really love to drink in January. So the lime is very subtle. Like I've had that no. Budweiser mm. lime thing, and it's it's it's, it's like, bad beer it's like with with fake lime flavoring in it. This, this is, is really lovely. nice. This really tastes. I mean, I really think I might good. enjoy this when the weather's a little warmer. It does better. feel like a summer. It's definitely but, a sort of a need summer. some palm trees that's, in the background would be that's fantastic. That's lovely. <clears throat> and then they so they're making a bunch of beer, but they only have two on tap right now. The other one is a porter. Uh, uh, or horachata, horachata, horchata. I know horchata. how to pronounce that. Horchata. You know what horchata okay. is, right? You know what horchata yes, is. Yes, I know what horchata. What is, is. horchata? Can you tell us? Horchata. It, it's like a, a rice. A rice milk. Yeah, a rice drink. I've, I've uh, made it. Okay. It says well done, here, Todd. Uh, a smooth, creamy milk porter infused with a pinch mm. of cinnamon and roasted chufa nuts from Spain. Stop saying oh, words. Oh goodness. And uh, <laughs> I don't think that we should say anything. Let's and a chufa, chufa nut, uh, it actually dates it? back to the 1300s uh, or to the 13th century. And it's still really popular in Spain and Mexico. It's a little uh, seed, basically, that you chop up and uh, you make into a, into a drink. Uh, you soak, the, infuse the nuts into the drink. So, yeah. We, you we don't have, hang taste. on, we're just getting glasses to drink this. So, oh, that is that is very nice. It's got a really, at first, sort of, 
chocolatey porter flavor, and then you get a hint of cinnamon. That's the horchata. Um, Thank you. No, that's the cinnamon. And then there's which the is- horchata uh, flavor as well, which is sort of a creamy. Mm. Uh, See, this feels more wintry for me. Yeah, it's delicious. It is. So these are the two offerings they have that you can buy in the cans right now. They will be having more. They've only been open since December. Um, oh, and really pretty much good. everyone who works there oh, is you're leaving that I think here, right? from Mexico. <laughs> they, they all speak Spanish. I see you have a few in front of you. You're not taking all those home. That's really that nice. That is a really nice beer. So anyways. Now, uh, you've been into you, this establishment? I have. I went in to buy this. Uh, and it was jam can't be jam-packed. Mm, no. It was jam-packed in COVID terms. There was a lineup outside. Yeah, yeah. But it, there was a lineup outside the door for people lining up to get in if you wanted to sit and have tacos and have a beer. Um, it, it, it would have been like a half-hour lineup, 45-minute no. lineup. And they only What I think is December. a very important question in COVID times, do they do takeout? They, I don't know if they do takeout food. I think they probably <laughs> they do. Must. They have to. Uh, they, they probably do if you go to their website. Uh, but I, it's, I feel like I we'll should inquire. Link we'll put to the, the link. website. For our, for our that, listeners, I feel like we should investigate that. That horchata porter is really There's good. a really neat Fantastic. flavor to it. And uh, yeah, so enjoy. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Now, I have two questions for oh, okay. you before we turn to the interview, just kind of. All right. So they're, they're, they're COVID related. Okay. Why? So the, why don't I do the second one first? Not that you would know. So the second one I had in mind was this couple from our from the Vancouver oh. area. Oh, the casino Do you know that they made guy. it onto CNN? I did Excellent. see stuff now a CNN story. Yeah. This couple that flew from Vancouver to the Yukon, Whitehorse. Mm-hmm. And then traveled further out. And then chartered a flight. Yeah. To a remote community to get their vaccine. I don't, I don't think I have to ask you how you feel about that, but what do you think about the whole story? <sighs> I... Kudos on creativity and willingness to waste your money uh, on that. I don't I know guess. if I could say kudos to that. They did get the the vaccine. They did get uh, the well, vaccine. They got their first shot. But now they've been told they can't get the second until it's their turn. That's yep. correct. Um, and they're facing but now of course jail there's time. The, there's now they've been charged. That's why C- yeah. that's why it made CNN because yeah. there's actually now been charges. The he. Yeah, you could. I mean, it's an example of someone, a a person of privilege, a couple of wealth and privilege, figuring they're more important than anyone else. We're going to find a way to jump the jump the queue. But we saw that a bit with with the Canadian tourists, uh, you know, the snowbirds going down to To Florida, Florida. and they were jumping the queue. They they were getting shots before people in Florida were getting them, and before people up here were getting them. And you know, I mean, they're people of privilege too, but. One of the things that I think is interesting about the story in terms of what we do on Rector's Cupboard is that the tendency of the question of when it's okay to dehumanize someone, which of course we would say never. Yeah. But this couple now, it seems that in many circles, it's fair game to just say they are the worst people that yeah, have ever and, existed. Yeah, and I know for They're myself, really I've, I've been pushing a bit against that, like trying to in- internally because I think that people have intrinsic value because they're people. Uh, I'm certainly incredibly frustrated and I don't believe that they should be free of consequences. Um, I, I do work at not dehumanizing them. And we've seen in other circumstances, uh, people finding out that, uh, oh, I'm not supposed to be in the queue, but someone's invited me into the queue at hospitals and stuff. And people have gone and taken advantage of that. And this is obviously a more... Uh, to a greater degree. I mean, they went through a lot of planning and spent a lot of money to do this. But 
we've seen it before in other circumstances. So people will sometimes, given the opportunity to take a slight advantage, yeah. it's part of human nature to it's do It's so. always they that question, if, if nobody found out, what would you do? Like, is, is kind of the question. And yeah, if the, you got a call from yeah. someone who said, hey, we've got a couple of extra vaccines around, if you want to come in uh, before the end of the day, you can get it. I think a lot of people would probably go in and get it. No, this again, extreme. There's example. a story in the United States about a, a healthcare practitioner of some kind who had access to some of the vials of the of the vaccine, and they were going to go bad, and there was nobody out, like they were gonna, and so he took them home and vaccinated some of his friends, and yep. and he's being upfront about it. He's like, yes, that's what I did because literally there was. Well, we were you go, it's them out. probably at this point one of the most precious commodities on the planet. You don't want it to go to waste. Yep. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, and, okay, and because of the way it has to be split up in doses, it you, there's always going to be an odd number, and yeah. Then what was your first question? My first question was really like, "Have you heard?" And I'm, you're probably going to say, "Yes, you've heard." And so we don't. Was it on Facebook? Because well, I was. thought about I thought about razor blades, like those. You know how oh, you go. Sorry, it's really this expensive. Is a, this is an abrupt change. Well, shaving, Ken. You have to shave from time to time, a few times Once a year a at least. Once a week. And and. When you go to buy the the things that attach to like the Gillette Mock eighty two or whatever, yeah, it is, the super there's expensive. like five blades in there now. Right? Yeah, exactly. Used to be one. I think it's two, like it's like it's four. like the opposite. It's like the seven minute. You apps. can see where this is going, right? There's no. going to be seven blades. Which is, no, I now can't. you're supposed to wear more than one mask. Oh, I see where you went with this. That's a really weird transition. So. Multiple blades is better. Multiple masks is better. Well, is it what well, well, used to be one mask? Now it's two masks. Is it going the same way as soon? It'll be like four masks. The best way to protect yourself against COVID is four masks. It's possible. I but do I see. It. I do see people wearing two. I see people wearing the cloth mask and then the That's medical what they mask say over the, top, the, or the other way around, the medical mask and then the. Anyway, that's it. That was my question. As we sit here today. It is one of those days that now has a name, and it has a name that has a corporation attached to it. You know what it is, Ken? I do. It's Bell Let's Talk Day. It's, which, so I feel like it's kind of named after me. It could just... Ken oh, Bell. It is Bell Let's Talk Day. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I never, Thank it's you. It's Ken Bell Let's Talk Let's Day. Talk. <laughs> um, not quite. It, yeah. So it, And the idea behind this particular day in Canada is... Is to talk about mental wellness, to talk about talk about your emotions, your feelings, how you're doing. And in this particular COVID year, pretty important thing to do. So they're really pushing it. Yeah. And I noticed that if you like watch any sports, you watch hockey, you watch TSN or something like that. There's always stories around on Bell Let's Talk Day of uh, so-and-so, this athlete um, and what they faced. And they're kind of really being honest now about their... Uh, mental health struggle or whatever it is. So so we're gr glad to record this particular episode on this day because we're going to wind up talking, I hope, um, and I expect a good deal about mental health. Uh, our guest today is Sharon Smith, who is an Anglican vicar and has been an occupational therapist and has done work in counseling and wellness and has her PhD. So the Dr. Reverend, is that the Reverend Doctor? Reverend is that the doctor. right title? I don't know the order. So I'm going to say Reverend Doctor. That's correct. Um, because uh, Sharon has done her PhD work in spirituality and schizophrenia. She's the founder of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries uh, that does a lot of work uh, in mental health in religious communities, including um, breaking some stigma and other kind of things. We've done work with them, and, and it's been fantastic. So Sharon, welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you. Good to be here. 
so so good to have you join us today. Mm-hmm. So I know that we've got uh, quite a, a list of things, and I, I do think that we will get to talking about mental health, Todd, because I'm going to start with it. Um, oh, good. <laughs> so we'll just check off that box right now. Um, Sharon, again, thank you so much for joining uh, us today. I'm really excited uh, to talk to you. Um, and I know that we uh, are aiming today to talk about mental health and faith and spirituality and the church and how these all relate to each other. Um, and so as we kind of start our conversation and we're looking at these maybe from a bit of a, a bigger picture, uh, as somebody who has a lot of expertise in all of these fields, uh, what do you see as some of the connections between them? When, when I got this question from you in the, in the questionnaire you sent, I, I sort of thought to myself, how aren't they connected? <laughs> <laughs> and I actually think this has been um, Western thinking's downfall hmm. is that we've separated things out. And the way I like to think about experience is that all experience is in parallel with each other. So whenever we have an experience, whatever it might be, it is an experience of the mind. It is an experience of the emotion. It is an experience um, in relationship uh, with others. Uh, so it is this multi-layered experience in parallel. And you can talk about experience on any of those levels. And so when in my work in the mental health field, before I became uh, a priest, I noticed that people really wanted to speak about their faith. They wanted mm. to speak about their spirituality and or religion. Um, and what I did, uh, there was this divide between what psychiatry was willing to open up um, in terms of content around this. I think somewhat because it is so mysterious the way these things interact and don't interact with each other. Um, where do you draw the line between a, a mental health uh, diagnostic experience and a spiritual mm -hmm. experience? Is there a line? It, it are some of the questions <laughs> that get asked. Um, and then the church has come in for better or worse. Um, there have been places of belonging for people as they go through struggles, but there have also been places of judgment. Mm -hmm. um, and in my, in, in my view, a mental illness experience is never an individual's um, to carry. And our society has generally put diagnosis onto an individual rather than seen the system's influence mm. on how somebody is doing. And so I think, you know, mental health, faith, spirituality, and church, um, they are all interconnected like a ball of wool. <laughs> And so we could take any 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 strain of it, and and uh, we will be able to talk about all four of those things. I think. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you you've already mentioned a couple of the ways maybe that that the church has not taken helpful stances. Um, are there any ways that you think, in particular, or any actions the church could be taking to start to move towards healthier kind of connections between mental health and spirituality? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one, one of the pieces that, that's, that I find important is how spirituality and religion connect, um, because spirituality uh, is uh, also an individual 
experience. It's an internal individual experience and it's a communal, mm. it's, it's a communal experience. So um, when we think about helping people to process experience, I think there needs to be a way that we can expand um, our view of what normal experience is and particularly around um, hallucinations, um, uh, mood shifts, um, anxiety and stress issues. Um, you know, when I think about all the different types of, of, of mental struggles that people have, that we all have to varying degrees, how can we talk about those in spiritual terms, in faith terms, and in religious terms that don't cut people off from naming their experience. Mm. And there's a, a word for that, there's a phrase for that, and that is uh, spiritual bypassing. That when somebody begins to share um, an experience that people get nervous about, they move into um, jargon that doesn't connect with the experience. Mm. And I think there's some other ways that we can, that we can do that to make vulnerability about our lived experience um, safe within church settings, within the faith community. Yeah, and I know that that for myself um, growing up, and I would imagine that as, as somebody with with your education and your, your skill set, you would probably be more attuned to this than, than a lot of other people. Um, how have you noticed that perceptions, particularly around issues of mental health, have have shifted in the church? Because I remember growing up, there was still the, um, what I believe is incredibly damaging belief that um, if someone were to die uh, from suicide, that they would automatically be going to hell. And I feel the need to state very clearly that I don't believe that. Um, But I have seen a lot of shift in in that particular perspective. Um, I was wondering if there were any other, or if you could speak to um, that one in particular, or... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean I think this is a very sensitive piece. I know that some many of us uh some of us on this podcast mm-hmm. have experienced the sadness of of loss um to folks who where depression killed killed them, you know, it it is what takes you under and and there's no hope. And in those places suicide seems like the easiest option to solve the problem of what they're facing. Um, So how have perceptions changed? I I think um, mental health advocacy groups have done a lot to bring the conversation up so that we have words uh, to frame what we're experiencing and that those words become familiarized. I have seen also a shift in our understanding of um, what is sin. Because I think one of, the, one of the issues that comes up is who is responsible for, devi- I'm going to quote, quote unquote, deviant behavior, yeah. um, some of which might come out of um, a mental, a diagnosed mental illness or mental condition. Um, and who, who's responsible for what happens out of that, where relationships may get damaged or, um, 
or someone self-harms or there's sort of broader implications for behavior. And I, I've personally found it helpful. And um, I think I've seen a shift in this too, how we understand sin, hmm. um, you know, going back to, um, you know, maybe even fourth century ideas of Evagrius and some of the desert mothers and fathers around sin as um, passion or instinct and, and, and seeing it more as um, distraction from the spiritual life rather than as moral failure mm. stops us from judging each other's behavior as much as seeking to understand where the behavior comes from. And that for me is actually a little bit, is quite a helpful shift. Um, and then that also sort of, you know, we, we start to think about blame and, and um, yeah. not, not blaming and, and not shaming people for what they do. And those are just, that is uh, toxic behavior within community um, and, and, and is very difficult to share uh, experiences uh, around uh, those mental uh, health experiences, particularly when someone is in a really um, deep depression or in a, an episode of mania where they're out of control. And then they look back at those moments and feel so much shame. Um, and they're trying to sort out what's mine to own, what's not mine to own. How are people going to see this? How are people going to accept me back? And I think theology, church and its theology would do really well at um, kind of massaging some of those mm. concepts mm -hmm. so that we, we have a different framework to work with. I'm interested in like this, this idea of the shift in understanding of sin. It used to be, um, Allison referred back to a time when particularly things around mental health or, or what people might say mental illness the, the relationship between that and sin was so close, right? And and that concept that if we don't understand it, then we'll label it as deviant or sinful or whatever, um, that is within a religious context. How that works within a non-religious context is also interesting, that, that maybe, you know, being happy or being successful or being okay is kind of the thing you have to measure up to. And part of the reason there's stigma you know, there's a religious heritage to some of that stigma, but then there's just a cultural heritage to, you, you know, you're breaking some some agreed upon code if you're not okay. And so the stigma works across uh, both things. I'm interested in the concept of spiritual bypassing. You mentioned hallucinations in, in regard to that sometimes people, instead of listening or whatever, can do uh, spiritual bypassing. Can you, can you t describe that a little bit more for us, what, what that is? Yeah. I... I where I've seen it, so I mean, in its in its, if we take it out of the mental health realm just for a moment, although it is in the emotional health realm. So let's okay. take it to grief, for example, and think about people gathered at a at a memorial when when we are allowed to be gathered at a memorial, um, and you know, if you are in the the line, if you are a family and you and everybody's coming past you and giving these remarks very difficult for people to be with your pain to be with your grief and so what they try and do is give you a spiritual comment like mm. god's in control it's all going to be okay um this person is with jesus now um they're they're happy you know let them go um and what they don't do is give you the space to actually process what you're going through 
And so I feel like when it comes to mental illness, the bypassing happens in how we we frame it. Mm. And so, um, you know, I'm hoping this doesn't happen anymore, but in framing something as demonic, we were talking earlier mm-hmm. how things have changed. There is still in some pockets of our our church, um, big, big C church, um, people who would frame an experience as being evil and demonic. And so the bypass is we can cure you because right. we can lay hands on you and get rid of the demon and then you'll be okay. So it's that we come up with a spiritual solution for something that actually is a process and recovery is a long process. Mm-hmm. Another, another way of bypassing might be um, we'll pray for you and you'll be fine. Or um, you, need an, you need more faith. Or yeah. try these contemplative practices and everything will go away. Mm-hmm. Not to say prayer is not good, not to say contemplative practices um, aren't good. In fact, I'm a strong believer that they build resilience for us um, in our emotional lives and in our self-awareness. Um, because, you know, when I said earlier, all experiences in parallel, someone is going through um a mental health recovery journey, we're talking months, we're talking years, and that journey is going to be accompanied or or also spoken of or experienced in spiritual and religious ways. And that journey is going to be long. So those two narratives about what someone's experiencing, Mm -hmm. uh, there needs to be space for both. Mm-hmm. in in community so space for almost like multiple layers of what's going on uh and so in talking about journey um and journeying you yourself have been on uh a journey you todd mentioned that you you started in physiotherapy and then went into counseling you started um the the sanctuary uh ministry and now you've landed yourself as uh, an anglican vicar uh how did that all happen? What's what, a was, what was Sorry, that? I'm, I'm very distracted, but I, I, I'm, I don't come from a high church, and I'm just all I can think of is the Vicar of Dibley when I hear that, <laughs> which I don't think is a bad association. Do you have a opinion. show? Great show. Great show. <laughs> Don French is amazing. Yeah. Could, could, sorry. So, can in this, can you also define Sharon, can, what a vicar is? Okay, so Sharon, define in, in the context of how you got from point A to point uh, H uh, or point V. <laughs> Point V, uh, how would you define yourself as a vicar? Or, or no, Ooh, how would you define that journey? <laughs> Make sure you include the vicar part. What was that like for you? Sure, yeah. I, I would say that my, um, my call to be a priest was probably the first call. Um, I remember being uh, maybe nine or ten years old and having a dream of being around the Lord's uh, supper table. And I was the only woman there. And I grew up in a patriarchal um, South African context within the Baptist church where um, there was very much um, a masculine identity for pastors. And and so that didn't even cross my mind that that Mm. would be a path that I could actually be on. And there were very few um, role models of women around who actually uh, entered that vocational path. Um, so I, 
the next best thing for me was was working in mental health. So I became an occupational therapist. You said physiotherapist, so I just want to oh, clarify. It's Sorry, my bad. <laughs> no worries. Uh, occupational therapist working um, in in acute psychiatry. Mm. So I would be working um, on a ward where people would have come into emergency twenty four hours before I would I would see them, and I absolutely loved that work um, because it was really connecting with humanity at the most vulnerable and mm -hmm. you'd hear um, real stories of what was going on and people hadn't yet received diagnoses and so they would be framing their experience in very raw everyday words that were part of their life like their worldview and many Christians came through um, the ward I was working on and that in those initial explanations is what got me interested in this connection between uh, spirituality and and their lived experience of, of uh, a mental illness and particularly psychosis. We would see people who either had um, entered the psychotic realm, should we say, through drug use um, or through some kind of a dissociative condition. And schizophrenia was often a common uh, diagnosis that mm. someone would, would receive from there. Yeah, and I, I, I married a minister um, uh, when I was in my early 20s, and we moved to uh, Vancouver to study at Regent College. Mm -hmm. um, and Regent College really was the place where I was liberated as a woman. I think mm. it was such a gift that Regent gave to me. Um, I have moved on from Regent theologically, so I'll just say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and for, you know, during that time, Regent, um, the community there was really good to me because that was the time when my uh, husband died. Um, he, he entered a very dark depression and ended his life by suicide in those early um, years of us being in Canada. Um, and I, I had already applied for and had started a, a PhD in trying to bring together um, my understandings of faith, spirituality, and psychosis. And so I was already in that world. And his um, journey into depression and his life ending by suicide was um, was definitely grounds for a lot of uh, soul searching for mm. me, and uh, yeah, so really the, the pursuit of of uh, me becoming a vicar, you can actually see it's not mm -hmm. really a, a far leap because uh, I was struggling to be an occupational therapist mm. in those days because I kept wanting to go to the spiritual questions, right. um, and I actually developed a couple of um, modules and curricula around. Um, practicing spirituality as a health professional and did some educational sessions for psychiatrists and social workers and RNs that worked in psychiatry, OTs. Um, and, but it just wasn't, it wasn't quite like scratching the itch, you know? Right. <laughs> and um, so out of that journey, I, uh, I landed um, in this starting sanctuary and again, I would be going into someone else's congregation and doing some work, preaching, running workshops, right. opening up the conversation for about uh, mental health within the Christian church. 
And it came a time when I needed to give this organization called Sanctuary um, away. It was no longer uh, my vision. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked what was next. And at that point, I was in the Anglican Church of Canada and um, the priest who was uh, who, who was priest of the community I was part of kept asking me, why are you not ordained? Mm. And it just became the next thing. It, be, yeah. it sort of this path just opened. And I thought, yeah, this is it. This is this is the path I need to walk. Wow. And yeah, that's so, wonderful. And and vicar, just for the sake of oh yeah, what is a vicar? <laughs> what is a vicar for our non-Anglican community here? <laughs> well, in you know what, it's actually named quite differently depending on your context. But yeah. in our diocese, a vicar is a priest that is part time, funded by the community in which they serve, ah. and then works elsewhere as well um, for your income. And that's certainly how I fit because I. I am <laughs> clinical faculty in the occupational therapy department at UBC, where okay. I still do some part-time work. I learned so something. Thank you, Sherry. Did you learn too? I did. You did. I'm very happy with this. And one one other question I have you in your title is Todd mentioned is doctor, and your uh, doctoral work was in what? Tell us a little bit about what your doctoral studies was in. Yeah, so it was uh, within the discipline of rehabilitation sciences. And the question I was asking is, what is the meaning of spirituality for people who live with a diagnosis of schizophrenia? Hmm. And it, I did a um, phenomenological study, which means the study of lived experience. And I started with 30 individuals in the lower mainland um, asking questions around how they make meaning um, do they have experiences that they would describe as spiritual? Are they part of a community that supports their spirituality? Um, and eventually came down to 11 participants who I journeyed with for three years, actually. And I visited their places of faith from all different, all different descriptions of what that means. Some people were spiritual but not religious. Um, some people wouldn't even use the word spiritual but they would talk about experiences that are inexplicable. So I had my 11 that I eventually worked with all represented a different way, a different framing of, of what we, what I would call spiritual. Were um, these people who were on like on a, on a, on treatment, like on medication and, or was there a range in that or? Yeah, in order for the study to meet the, the criteria to actually say people diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, they needed to be currently receiving treatment from the Vancouver Coastal Health, okay. from the Community Mental Health Services, and, and still uh, have a case manager. Okay. Um, part of the ethics of doing a study is to make sure that in your conversations, uh, if something might be might raise an issue that the person is supported elsewhere. Um, right. So it was really important that someone was part of a, a mental health team at the time of of being part, of participating in my research study. One of the things that I've seen, like when I was working at a church myself, and often as you might know now, and obviously know through your work and experience, sometimes it's kind of 
church workers who can be oddly like frontline in, in some of these things, because some of these even severe mental health things come, you know, like it's either police in some cases, because there's not necessarily enough like mental health workers who can go out into the community. And, and so across the, you know, experience of a pastor like myself, there were multiple times where I was dealing with someone with or working with someone in community with someone with severe bipolar or schizophrenia or, or whatever it is. One of the things that I saw in that time is this this wrestling with medication and and around the spirituality or I would put for in my experience it was spirituality and creativity. Mm-hmm. Kind of that sense that people would struggle with like feeling really alive and feeling like and and that the medication would would dull that. Um, and there was in some of their, in some cases, this, this struggle with that. Um, did you see the same thing and how could you kind of speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, first of all, want to say that choosing to use any psychiatric medication is a very personal journey. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a hard decision because it is going to have effects on your mood um, on your creativity, it, it does, um, it can, not always, but it can flatten, it can feel like your experiences are, are a little flat, they don't have the same um, up and down movements, or um, perhaps peaks, which are enjoyable, mm. as well as um, the valleys, which are hard to be with. So yeah, it is very much a personal journey. I think what comes down like in any decision, um, what I found helpful is uh, walking with somebody to think about what they give up if they don't take the medication and mm. what they gain if they do. And I have been particular, I can give an example here. Um, I walked with a, a close friend through significant um, bipolar experiences and um, she tended towards mania uh, mm. when she decided to go off her medication. And she was a single mom. And uh, she describes this incident of uh, one day she was so manic and she took her daughter, who I think was under the age of eight, to her next door neighbor, left her there and uh, started uh, hitchhiking across Canada. Um, because she was on a journey of love and it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience for her that she's still trying to make sense of. But when she got to Quebec um, and miraculously made it there, um, but when she got wow. there uh, in the hospital that she landed up in through the legal system, um, the psychiatrist asked her, how important is it for you to be a mom? And she had to work through, um, is flattening my Mm. moods moods and my spiritual experiences and the creativity um or my is flattening those worth it to be a mom to my daughter Mm. and that was she she weighed that up and and came to a decision and so I think um yeah I mean that's what it's like it's it's like any decision that a human needs to make and it takes time and it takes journey um, obviously, uh, within our legal system too, there are uh, 
certain ways that they can enforce someone to have medication. Someone can be certified and therefore held accountable to, to take their medication. And that is because if they were not on their medication, their behavior would harm others or harm themselves. Um, And so those that's, that's, that's the extremes, but there's a lot of decision-making that can happen in between that. I'm interested in how your work may have informed, um, concepts of what would be considered normal. Like I would imagine working in in a project like this with spirituality and schizophrenia, there's always that challenge in, in mental health of like, what does it mean to be normal or like successful in terms of mental health, but also then taking that question and applying that in a, in a religious community, you know, what's Mm -hmm. acceptable and normal and kind of like, you know, the way that you should be within a congregation or, or, or a, church community um how have you kind of thought and worked around those those issues of like here's here's where you should be kind of that pressure that can be present to reach some kind of stasis or something or that -hmm. other people deem as acceptable well one one way to do it certainly is to is to take away some of the um psychiatric language now, I think I think diagnoses are exceptionally helpful. So, an individual doesn't know what's what's going on for them, and they receive a diagnosis, and suddenly they realize other people have had this before. I'm not alone. And mm. um, there's that. Um, there's it's also helpful for a family. I think for, for for people who are close to you as an individual, if you if you're the one experiencing this, um, to just kind of know do some reading, it gives a, it gives an anchor to the experience. But for the wider community, honestly, knowing that someone is bipolar, like it, it, it doesn't, I don't know how helpful that is. I don't know how helpful it is to, um, to, to have sessions on what is bipolar, you know, in a, in a faith community. Right. I think it's, I personally think it's helpful for people to understand that, um, Mental health fluctuates for all human beings. And there are things uh, within us and outside of us that can cause or precipitate those fluctuations. So, you know, in in psychiatry, we talk about things that predispose us. That would be the internal things, our genetics, our our internal brain chemistry. And then there's precipitating things. Those are the stresses outside of us that can precipitate something to happen. And all of us uh, experience uh, precipitating factors, even if we don't have any predisposition to, um, to mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you lose a job and you just, what well, you know, I'll use, my, I'll use some sociological language, you languish, you go into a place where you don't want to eat, you're not sleeping well. Those are all mental health symptoms that across the board humans can relate to. So I think in community, it's a little easier to talk about mental health as something that is about all of us. Um, That's not to diminish those extreme um, examples, I guess, or the extreme experiences. Mm -hmm. You don't want to diminish them. But you also don't want that to be your primary focus. You, you use the the word languish, and that's some of the the language we've seen in some of your work. That the flourishing and languishing, um, mm-hmm. in terms of mental health, and I mean, you could 
talk about that in terms of spirituality as well or how both are connected. Uh, tell us a little bit more about flourishing and languishing and how that language can help. Yeah, it, it's actually the work of Dr. Corey Keyes, who's a sociologist uh, in the U.S. and has published work on understanding mental wellness at a broader level. And his work um, focused on the university campus, really looking at a broad range of student experiences of mental wellness, both social experience, like um, mental wellness in terms of how you, you connect socially, but also psychologically within the person. And what he found was that people can flourish even if they have a diagnosis of uh, mental illness mm. and people can languish even if they don't have a diagnosis of mental illness. And so the common experience is movement up and down the flourishing and languishing scale, if you like. And it, you, it's not static. I think that's the part that as humans we need to understand. And labeling is something that creates more of a static image. Oh, that person lives with bipolar. They must always be languishing. You know, no. I mean, people, as humans, we we, we can languish and we can flourish mm -hmm. no matter what our um, diagnosis or non-diagnosis. And a, a wonderful experience that I had of this um, with a friend who I companion, companioned and we met in a, a soup kitchen. We both used to stand next to each other and ladle soup into people's bowls. And, <laughs> and um, she became a friend and is still a friend. Um, I remember um, walking with her through a psychotic experience that she had um, when her um, fire alarm was smoke alarm was broken in her apartment and she didn't know that she she didn't she she remembered that she wasn't supposed to tamper with it and she thought that switching it off was tampering so she oh, put wow. a towel over it and kind of pasted the towel to the wall and and the constant stress of hearing that oh. sharp sound um precipitated a, a psychotic episode for her mm. and i remember walking with her through that and she was in this time of languishing um, took her to a psychiatrist, um, quickly gave her sleeping medication up to a dose of her antipsychotic for a while. And over time, she just, yeah, she, be, she flourished again. And she was just my friend. Um, and then not even a year later, I was working in a place in the downtown side that just wasn't a good um, fit for me. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I wasn't sleeping and I just wasn't well at all. And my friend um, phoned me at five o'clock one morning and uh, I, uh, I, you know, picked up the phone and I said, is everything okay? And she said, no, this is not about me. I, uh, I dreamt last night that you had your hands in the air and you were giving up. Are you okay? And for me, that friendship is a wonderful example of how two yeah. people with very different internal wirings and different things that might precipitate language and flourishing, but both are there with each other um, to move up and down. One with a diagnosable condition and one right. perhaps with not. Right. <laughs> you know, who knows where I'll right. end up, but right now. <laughs> yeah. um, I was, what, what gives you hope? uh in the context of the church pertaining to mental health like where what what things go oh okay we, we're, we're on we're we're gonna be okay here 
Yeah. Well, I actually did do the use the, the sanctuary material um, with the church that I'm currently um, the uh, priest in charge. And I, uh, uh, while we had, we adapted some of the theological content for our particular context, what I watched happening with people having some conversation, honest conversation about how they were arriving that day. What, um, what moods they were struggling with, um, what they've done to, to assist with anxiety. And I watched people sharing and sharing honestly in a Zoom environment, because this we did this mm -hmm. during pandemic. Um, there was a deepening of vulnerability in that context, uh, of friendships that were developing at a different level. Um, and our prayer together changed mm. because of that. Mm. So the kinds of prayers we wanted to pray, the kind of liturgy we wanted to use, um, started to shift mm. because vulnerability began to shape it. And I, I do, I think when people can, it, can talk about this, um, it, it, it changes us. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that, you know, particularly in the mainline community that, that I'm part of, the way we can hold lament in our services and make space mm. for uncomfortable experience mm. can actually set a tone for how we can do that uh, in non-structured community settings. So if that space can be held in the way we pray together, in the way we break bread together, the overflow of that to the way we relate to each other. Um, I, I have hope. I have hope for that. It, it's, you've moved us to um, actually kind of an area of the next question that I had is just thinking of your journey vocationally. Um, and now, I mean, it's different for all ministers right now. It's different for everybody, but running Zoom services and doing it. But still, you're, you're kind of, and you say you're a vicar, so you have different responsibilities in terms of work but in terms of that uh, church community the tempo of the vocation now is for you now more so around worship and liturgy and the the community gathered and the um, that must be really interesting for you in terms of the path that you've taken and I didn't know your story and this image you had way back when when you were really young and it must feel in some ways like kind of coming home to some degree is it how is it I, I don't really know my question how is it that like being a minister working in the day-to-day -day of a church um with all of this experience that you've had how does it change how you look out at the congregation well i you know um we all come to the table begging for bread <laughs> me included <laughs> um when we can come to the table for bread and i i just think there is something about having journeyed deeply with people beyond their breaking point. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know that that is, that there's the capacity for that in every single person, even the person who's causing the issues in the community, you know, the person who is just not happy with anything. You know what yeah. church communities are like? There's always no, at I least one. You know what you're talking about at all, Kevin? No, no, yeah. no, haven't got a clue. We've been ministers. <laughs> <laughs> 
so when you think about a church system, right, um, I, I just think it, it, it does so much to know that um, behind each yeah. person, no matter how proudly they present themselves, there is, there is brokenness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I tend to preach. Um, I, I tend to move my preaching toward lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can think of Remembrance Day celebrations as an example of um, just, just looking out at these um, elders in the church who proudly stood for something in their time around the wars of our yeah. world. Um, but I know what PTSD is too. Right. Mm. And I know that there's something going on there. And to be able to, to hold that gently for folks um, and that, you know, tears are welcome even in an Anglican church. <laughs> and, uh, uh, right, I, I think there's something about shifting a culture towards gentleness. Um, mm for everyone's experience to show up. Yeah, I think that's helpful. It must also inform what it means to be a successful minister, vicar. You know, we, we, th- those of us who've been in church work, there's always that pressure, right? What it means to, to be successful and have a good church or something like that. And what you've described is just so much more meaningful than so, so many of the, the models that are there for... Uh, Ken Bell is with us on... on Ken Bell, Let's Talk Day. You've had some recent changes in terms of ministry. Yeah, you mean just today's or overall? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, today, so I uh, resigned from my church uh, almost, almost coming up on two years ago, uh, but today I sent a letter into my, uh, or an email to my bishop saying, uh, or now former bishop saying, I think you can take me off the rolls of, of the uh, Anglican denominational group that I was a part of. As I said, I don't have any interest in coming back into pastoral ministry uh, with with that particular group, and so you can take me off the rolls. So it was a bit of a liberating feeling. I, I knew for a while I wasn't going to go back into it for a whole slew of reasons, but uh, today was the day I just thought, you know what, I'm going to send that email off and just say, yeah, you can you can take me off that. So it was. I just think was the, the reason I'm asking you is, and and even getting you to mention it on mic here is how interesting it is in terms of like sharing your journey of work and vocation and and yeah. and then it's going on with all of us to this degree ken's a chaplain at a care center spiritual care practitioner spiritual care practitioner yeah. um and uh and there's so many good things happening there and those of us who know ken know what a great fit he is in that work and just to see how these contours happen and how the one thing informs the next thing and uh so we know you somewhat we're really glad that you're doing what you're doing what i i mean you've been there since 2018 as vicar uh, no. i think so is it really? <laughs> quickly. What, nobody knows what year it is now it's something <laughs> no, it's not 2020 or it's yeah somebody said the 400 and something day of 2020 right oh. but um but uh, so you've been there for some time, but we're, we're, uh, we're grateful that you're in the ministry that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, you're at St. Catherine's Church. Indeed. And, yes. In Edgemont, North Vancouver. Yeah. And so uh, people can look that up. We'll put links and stuff in and. Uh, well, and, and I think as, as someone who, um, who, who left a church community in maybe not the most uh, fantastic way uh, and struggled with with church in general for a while, I know that 
I am very grateful that people like you are in the church and are leading and are setting what I hope is the trajectory for the church. That gives me hope for the church. Amen. Yeah, we also know some of the, I mean, not to not to turn it into lament, but some of the loneliness and what it means to be a minister at times as well, that, that there's there are certain vocations that that bring these kinds of things, even as you're immersed in community. And so um, uh, thank you so much for all the work you do and for taking the time with us. We've learned a great deal. There's lots of ways we'll put links of how to pursue some of these things. And, uh, and uh, but even just this brief conversation has, uh, has been really, really helpful. So thanks so much and blessings in your work. You're welcome. Thank you.